The John Morris Show, episode 127. The John Morris Show. Your life on code. Ladies and gentlemen, John Morris. Everybody, welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. Got a, a number of things today for you here on tap. First off, I want to talk about Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, this article I was reading, How Jerry Seinfeld Made His Millions, because I think it really applies to what we do. So A lot of times you hear these stories, and they may or not may or may, or may not really apply to, to the tech field, the coding, etc. But in this particular case, I think it does. And so we're going to talk about that, talk about Malcolm Gladwell's kind of input on on this whole idea that I'm going to go into. Also, a little bit later, we're going to get into, I want to talk, I recently did an interview with uh, a gentleman by the name of Mike P. He's asked me not to use his full name publicly, but his story is really, really interesting because he's someone who's made a very dramatic transition in, in the tech industry and done it very, very quickly. And so he was recently in town. I, I locked him in the studio and grilled him about how he's been able to do that. And I want to talk about some of the things that that he discussed and, and really how it leads into some of the stuff that I've been talking about in my Ace the Interview series that I'm doing on Patreon to really help you guys and gals first get the confidence to apply for these kind of jobs because I think that's one of the biggest roadblocks that I see a lot of people dealing with. But then also having some techniques for when you go into an interview or you get hired at a job for for being able to get the job in the first place. And then also on top of that, doing some very specific things to allow you to move up quickly. And, and Mike, uh, Mike P is a very good uh, resource for that because he, he's, he's done it. All right, so that's what we're going to get into today. Before I get into that, as always, as I uh, have been mentioning here, these podcasts are podcast-only episodes. You're only going to find them on iTunes, Android, and SoundCloud. So if you want to make sure, if this is your first time listening to the show, you want to make sure you get access to all the episodes, then make sure you sub subscribe here. You're not going to see these over on YouTube or really anywhere else. So to do that, you can head on over to johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes to subscribe on your Apple device, johnmorrisonline.com slash Android to subscribe on your Android device, and johnmorrisonline.com slash SoundCloud, which will work on either device or the desktop. You can subscribe there as well. Also, last announcement before we get into the bulk of the show. Right now, if you're someone who's looking to learn JavaScript, you may or may not know this, but there's uh, about a year ago, roughly, Java, there was a new implementation of JavaScript called ES6. And this implementation has has updated. A lot of it was what they call syntactic sugar, meaning it, it did things with syntax. It added things to syntax or changed things with the way you write the, the actual code, the syntax, that made it easier to use. So, for example, you may remember that or you may have done this in the past that when you have, you want to create a string, let's say you're going to just output some string, but it's got variables that you've created earlier in your code, maybe programmatically or whatever. It's got those variables that you want to input into, you want to have as a part of that string. 
Well, before you'd have to basically contentain it just like you did with with a wooden PHP or, or any, most other languages, and you'd use plus signs. So you'd have to write your, your string, then a plus sign, your variable, then a plus sign, and then your string, and then maybe later a plus sign. And so it, it got a little bit cumbersome. Well, one of the things that ES6 has done is it's updated that to where you can use backticks and you can use curly brackets. And so instead of using single quotes for your string, you can use backticks and then inside of it, you can use use curly brackets to denote something that's a variable. Okay, so very, very simple, but it makes it a little less cumbersome. And there's a lot of this kind of stuff in this new implementation. So a lot of the tutorials and stuff that you may see online that are teaching you JavaScript are likely based off the old implementation and do doesn't include these new things that you can use for ES6. The reason I bring that up is because right now, if, if you're listening to this, the day that this show has, has come out, Udemy is in the middle of a launch of a new course for that's specifically designed to teach you JavaScript, and it's teaching you the ES6 updated version. So you're going to get the latest and greatest implementation of JavaScript. So not only are you going to learn JavaScript, but you're also going to learn all of the newest implementation. You're not going to have to go back later and unlearn a bunch of stuff that you'd already learned. You can can learn JavaScript and learn the absolute latest bleeding edge uh, version of it. So if you're someone who's looking to learn JavaScript, then this new course that they're launching is perfect for what you're after. During the launch, they're giving you 50% off. So really makes it kind of a no-brainer uh, if you're someone who's looking to learn JavaScript, not to to jump on that. Now, I've created a, a link for you with that discount. It's johnmorrisonline.com slash ES6. So that's E as in Echo, S as in Sierra, and then the number six. If you use that link, then you can get the course at 50% off. So definitely go check that out if you're someone looking to learn JavaScript. All right, so with all that out of the way, then let's get into talking. I want to talk, start off by talking about this, how Jerry Seinfeld made his millions. And the idea here is something called don't break the chain. So I was reading this article. I'm going to kind of take you through the article a little bit, and then, then we could talk about it. So in 1998, Jerry Seinfeld made $267 million from the ninth and final season of his hit show, Seinfeld. And NBC had begged him to do a 10th season to the tune of $5 million per episode for 22 episodes. And he declined. So, needless to say, that was a pretty good decade for him. And since then, it's been good for him as well because deals from his syndication is now... From, from the show, bringing a steady paycheck of about $32 million per year. And he's not doing anything for that. That's just syndication rights. So it's stuff, making money off of content he's already created. But if you go back before he was close to being a billionaire comedian, and before he was even really a household name, you might ask, well, how does one get that kind of talent and and the productivity to be able to to create 
Such a good show to write joke after joke, show after show, year after year at such a high level that he was getting paid that much for the show and is still getting paid as much as he is almost 20 years later. Well, in the article, they talk about a chance encounter that a comedian named Brad Isaac had with Seinfeld backstage at a show. And he asked Jerry if he had any tips for a young comic. And here's how Brad described the conversation. He said, the way to be a better comic was to create better jokes. And the way to create better jokes was to write every day. He told me to get a big wall calendar that has a whole year on one page and hang it on a prominent wall. Then the next step was to get a big red magic marker. And he said, for each day that I do my task of writing, I get to put a big red X over that day. After a few days, you'll have a chain. Just keep at it and the chain will grow longer every day. You'll like seeing that chain, especially when you get a few weeks under your belt. Your only job is to not break the chain. Now, as the article says, this is something to pay attention to because you'll notice Jerry didn't mention anything about having good jokes. He didn't even mention how long the activity had to last, that the task was very simple. Write something every day, put an X on the calendar, and don't break the chain. And it's almost so simple that it seem it can be people can think of it as counterintuitive. But if you think about it, there's there's something going on here. There's there's processes that are changing and habits that are changing if you do this. For example, doing something every day makes it a default behavior. So it's just like if you wake up in the morning and brush your teeth. After a couple weeks of doing that, you don't even think about it anymore. It becomes programmed into your habit structure, and you don't even have to decide whether to do it. It's just automatic. Now, you already have habits like these. For example, I get up every day and I make coffee. If I and if I uh, go a day where I don't have my coffee, my it feels like my whole day is thrown off. So for me, that's become a habit that I don't even think about anymore. I don't even, I mean, I'm half asleep when I'm doing it. But by doing it every day, it becomes a default behavior. And those default de- uh, behaviors repeated every day become habits. And over time, breaking the chain isn't even an option. You just you don't even you just don't even think about it. And here's the really important part of all this is goals are all fine and dandy. Right? You can set goals. Maybe you have goals right now that you've set that, oh, I wanna, you know, I wanna become a full-time developer in the next six months, and then after that I wanna make a six-figure income, and after that I wanna be able to retire at 40 or whatever your goals are. Those are all fine and dandy, but the act of actually getting to them requires a change in habit. And the only way that you're actually going to reach any of your goals, goals become a side effect. They really are a side effect of your habits, of what you do on a daily basis. I can tell you this with creating content like I do. I've always wanted to be, I've always liked teaching. I've always wanted to be somebody who did this on a daily basis. But actually getting in the habit of every day writing a blog post or doing a podcast or doing a YouTube video or writing an email or whatever it is, 
that's taken me a number of years to really develop the habit. And I'm still in the process of doing that. So again, goals are fine, but if you're not looking at your habits and trying to change your habits into the things that will actually bring you the goals that you're after, they're really just pipe dreams. Because you can only exert so much willpower each and every day. I was reading this article the other day, talked about a study where they're finding that humans only have a certain amount of willpower that they can exert. Like a lot of the training that you see out there, self-help stuff is about increasing your willpower and so forth. And you know what? Maybe there is, there's some truth to that. But in my mind, increasing the amount of willpower you have seems like incremental change. Uh, uh, not necessarily better use, but another use of your, your time could be learning how to have to use willpower less and less and still get the things you want. That's what we're talking about here. I don't need willpower to wake up in the morning and go make my coffee. I just do it. I don't even think about it. It requires zero willpower. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, I bring this up in relation to coders because I believe that this same advice applies to you. That you should code every single day and don't break the chain. And if you need to, go ahead and create a calendar just like Seinfeld advised the comic. Put up a big calendar. Mark every day with a big red X. And focus on not breaking the chain. But... The point is, is that in order to get where you want, you need to develop the habits that are going to get you there. Another way of looking at this, you may have heard of the 10,000 hour rule. Now, this rule was something that Malcolm Gladwell talked about in his book, Outliers. And Gladwell said that early access to 10,000 hours of deliberate practice is a consistent predictor of unique kinds of success in many fields. And what he was basically saying is that people aren't born geniuses, but they get there through hard work. A lot of people focus on being born a certain way, but if you look at a lot of the success stories, it was it was really hard work that got them there. It was changing habits. It was not breaking the chain. Examples he uses are Bill Gates, who had started coding as a teen, um, you know, was able to do a lot of it because of the school that he was in in Seattle. And as a result, became this kind of prodigy in the tech world. Uh, another one he uses is the Beatles, who would play eight, played a bunch of eight-hour gigs in Germany and put in all of that time before they became really popular and took over kind of the music scene in America. One that I would add, this wasn't one that he talked about, but one that I would add is Mark Zuckerberg. I mean, he was mentored as early as seven years old in programming. So, and he continued that kind of mentoring and learning all through his childhood and and into his early adulthood. So by the time he was at, you know, he was in college and created Facebook, he had had thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of doing this. Now, is a hard, fast rule that it's 10,000 hours? No. I mean, people argue about this. There's been people come out and completely repudiated what Gladwell said. There's people who come out and said it doesn't apply everywhere, right? Is it exactly 10,000 hours? Does it apply to every single, you know, 
every single industry or every single area of life. I mean, you could be five foot two and put in 10,000 hours, you know, tr- playing basketball, and there's still a probably a good chance you're not going to make the NBA. Or on the flip side of it, a guy like Kevin Durant, you know, his skill set is because of his height and his wingspan, and, and he's worked on his skills, but, you know, he probably was going to have a tendency towards being a really great basketball player regardless. So it's not this hard, fast rule. And, but to me, it's less about being this perfect, perfectly accurate scientific model. And it's more about what's useful as a tool or an approach for me, a way of thinking for me that's going to help me get where I want to go. And as something like that in this industry, I think it's a very good thing to latch onto. Because if you're in the right kind of field, which I believe tech is one of those, and you have even a slightly natural inclination and interest in the field, if you're someone who's into technology or you're into the, maybe the more logical processes that, that, that are involved with coding, or you're someone who's has a creative, likes to think creatively in regards to technology, if you have any of that stuff, then the one thing that you can control, you can't control you know, how you were born. You can't control what you're born with. You can't control where you were born. You can't necessarily control what your natural inclinations and interests are. But the one thing you can control is how much effort you apply. And so in that, Jerry Seinfeld's advice of don't break the chain is very, very pertinent. And I think is something that can, if, if you focus on that, of coding every day, even if it's just a little bit of code, it doesn't say anything about how much, doesn't say it has to be the greatest code ever, but do it every day and put in those hours, at some point you're going to get there. You're going to get where you want to be and it'll become a daily habit that will actually help you achieve the goals that you're after. All right, I got to take a break, but coming up next, we're going to get into, I'm going to talk a little bit about the interview I did with Mike P and some of the things that we can learn from that and how that applies to what we've been talking about in the Ace the Interview series that I've been doing on Patreon. And I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go into a little bit of lesson four of that series, which I haven't released yet, but it's called the advanced approach. And so if you've been following along, you know that there's two different approaches I recommend, a more basic approach that you use most of the time and then an advanced approach. I want to talk a little bit about this advanced approach because I think in the tech industry, you are going to be dealing with people who are more sophisticated interviewers. And so this is something that you would want want to use. And I'm going to talk about some of the instances where I've used this and what happened and what I did and how it turned out as a result. So we're going to get into that after the break. You're listening to John Moore's show. JohnMorrisOnline.com. You know, one of the big mistakes that I see a lot of developers make is they make learning how to code much harder than it has to be. For example, I see a lot of developers who think the list of skills that they need to learn to master PHP is pages and pages and pages long. It's not. Now, I've said this before, and I will definitely say it again. But there's a foundational set of skills that you need to learn in order to be functional as a PHP developer, meaning that you can execute on 
projects and get paid. This is the fallacy that is so prevalent in the PHP developer community that there's this ideal set of skills that you have to learn and that you have to be the absolute greatest developer in the history of mankind in order to be able to get paid to code. You don't. You simply need to be able to execute on projects. I talk about end results all the time. You need to be able to deliver end results to clients because that's ultimately what they want. But when you focus on these foundational skills and learning only those first, the things that will allow you to execute on projects, what you realize is that you can start getting paid to code much faster than you probably ever thought because you haven't set this idealistic, unattainable bar for yourself to reach before you allow yourself to take paid work. You can start now when you can execute on a deliverable, when you can complete a a single project, when you can create a contact form or a business website. When you can execute on that, you can start. And you can start then building the life that you wanted that you got into this all for the in the first place instead of continuing to slave away at some job making somebody else rich anyway you can learn these skills in my free course the beginner's guide to php which you can enroll in at johnmorrisonline.com/learnphp and it's going to teach you these foundational skills so you can get started right now. Again, it's a completely free course that you can take at johnmorrisonline.com slash learnphp. Don't wait on this. Head over there right now and get started building that life. Welcome back to the John Morris Show, johnmorrisonline.com. So the other day, uh, a guy by the name of Mike P, you know, you probably don't know who he is necessarily, but his story is very interesting and very unique in my opinion, because it was just three years ago that he was a broke college student. He was working in a factory. He was really frustrated, probably in a situation that maybe many of you listening to this feel like either you're in college and you're kind of starting to get towards the end of end of your schooling and wondering, okay, what's next? How am I going to get a job? What am I going to do? You kind of start to have those questions. Or maybe you're someone who's in another industry doing something that you don't really enjoy and you you want out. You want to get into technology. You want to break into the industry somehow. And so it's a, it's a similar situation to what he was in. He was in college, but he was also, he was a little bit older, right? He wasn't fresh out of high school so he had a family, he had five kids, he was working in a factory, he was just frustrated and really, I would say, down about the light, the direction his life had taken. I think he's like a lot of us who think, well, I thought my life was going to be more than this. And so working in a factory in a small town in Missouri really wasn't his idea of, of what he wanted out of life. And so he got to the point where he decided to make a change. And so uh, you know, through some conversations that I had had with him at the time, he finally decided to apply for a tech position. He applied a number of different places. He ended up getting hired at IBM. And now within a span of just three years from that hire, he's moved, he's been hired by another company 
Uh, he makes a six-figure income. He's a senior consultant, and he works with and has worked with some of the largest companies on the planet, everyday companies that you would see and use every single day. Uh, he's They have been his clients. And he's become quickly kind of a key part of, of what they do and is often the lead in the kind of the specific niche that he his role in what that that the the company does he's usually the lead and so he's become someone who's well respected well paid uh and and is working with huge m- massive clients so that kind of transition one it's a dramatic transition two it's happened in just about 3 years it's happened very very quickly and so he was in town the other day and I locked him in my studio and I wanted to, I did a full hour interview with him. Now, if you're interested in getting access to that interview, there's two ways that you can do that. It's available for supporting listeners over on Patreon. You can go to johnmorrisonline.com slash Patreon, sign up at the exclusive courses level. And that interview is one of the many things that's available for you there. It's also available as a bonus in my PHP 101 course now. So if you go to johnmorrisonline.com slash PHP, sign up for my PHP 101 course, that interview is a bonus that you'll get along with that. So either one of those places, if you want to get access to the full hour interview, I think it's really worth it. Everybody that's listened to it has really loved it. I've gotten a number of comments about the value that that they've got out of it. So uh, again, if you want to check that out, be sure to do that. But some of the things that he said in that interview were interesting to me. So at one point I asked him, I wanted to know, like this is a guy who's worked with huge clients, works for one of the uh, Fortune's 500 fastest growing companies. I mean, when you talk about the high pressure, you know, top, tippy top of what you might do in the tech field, I would think that this is pretty close. I mean, there's probably some people that are in AI and some of this other stuff, but what he does is really close to being about as high level as as you can get in the tech field and he and he does data migration on top of that so you know crazy sql queries and all this managing data and so forth so uh it's very very technical and it's very very high level in terms of the type of client that he's working with so i wanted to know his thoughts on skill set versus more character and what's important in the tech industry. And so I asked him, I said, when you got hired at IBM, you got hired as a Java application developer, which he did. I said, at that time, how much Java did you know? How much training had you done in Java? And he had, he said he had taken an eight week course in college. Now, eight weeks is not nothing, right? That's it's not zero, but well, I've been in the tech industry. I've been involved in this industry for 11 years, and I still don't know everything, and I don't feel like I'm some super genius necessarily. So eight weeks is, while it's not nothing, it's a very small amount of training to be hired as a Java application developer. And then I asked him, so when you got that job, how many Java applications had you developed? That's your job. How many had you done? And the answer was zero. 
and he still got hired. And I asked him, okay, now three years later, having done this for three years and being involved with clients you're involved with, working for the company that you've worked with, making the income you make, how many Java applications have you developed at this point? And his answer was zero. And I bring that up because I, it, it goes back to what I always say. In this industry, people focus, people who don't do it, focus far too much on the skill set, on the technical skills that someone has, and think that's all that matters. That if you have them, then you're good. You'll be able to go any path that you want to go. And if you don't have them, have them, you can't go anywhere. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Now, I'm not saying that you, you don't need some skills, right? But an eight-week course in Java at college is not a super in You're not, I'm sorry, but you're not going to have someone, I've met these people, and you're not going to have someone who has just this super deep knowledge in Java and is going to be able to go out and just is some super genius. Chances are that person person will still have a problem creating actual Java applications that work. Now, every student's different. Some people go further than others and so forth. But it's not a super high-level skill set, yet still got hired. To this day, still hasn't written any Java applications. So that should tell you something about where skill set versus character come into play because a lot of as he mentioned in the interview he had basic technical questions that he had to answer and, and it was things like what's uh what's object-oriented programming right what's a class like just simple stuff like that but a lot of the interview went into him personally who he was his work ethic his personality what he valued etc and there were some things that he mentioned that he did where he was able to kind of turn the interview on its head and put the pressure back on the people interviewing him. If there's one thing that you can get from everything that I say about interviews, that would be the one thing. As much as possible, you want to turn the tables. You want to put the pressure back on them. Now, you can't just do that by going in there and being a bully. It's not going to work out. You have to do it in a very kind of logical, some like persuasive way, a way that really causes a mental kind of, a kind of cognitive dissonance for them, makes it hard for them to reconcile the, the challenge that you've put in front of them. And we'll talk about some examples of that here in a second, but turning the tables, putting you kind of in the power position, that gives you a huge advantage. And that's some of the stuff that he did that he talked about in the interview. I want to talk about doing this in a very specific way. And this is what I cover, well, some of what I cover in Lesson 4, The Advanced Approach in my Ace the Interview series. Again, this isn't released over on Patreon yet, but it will be soon. I'm releasing lesson by lesson, a new lesson really each week. And so uh, here soon that'll be available over there on Patreon. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, how to do this. So the first time that I really did this, I had been, I was, this was when I was right back from Iraq and I was applying at a bunch of different jobs 
And so I was doing a lot of interviews and I had started to notice that a lot of the questions were very, very similar and they were these silly, almost kind of, if you've done this, you'll know what I'm talking about, but they're these, they're not, they're not your basic standard questions. They're like, they're almost like you're visiting a shrink (laughs) and they're trying to ask you kind of gotcha questions or open-ended questions in a way to really see how you think and 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 what you'll say and if you'll get tripped up by this, how smart you are, how creative you are, etc. And the problem with them is that after you've been through it maybe once or twice, it becomes really, really obvious how to answer the questions. That's actually what I cover in the basic approach is just the completely obvious way to answer these questions that's going to work 90% of the time. But in this particular interview, I came upon an interviewer who was fairly sophisticated, who had done a lot of interviews and wasn't going for the basic approach. And I, 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 I bring this up, or I, I want to go through this, because I think that that's what you'll find in a lot of tech interviews, is that you'll find an interviewer who's maybe a little bit more savvy. And so the basic approach, the telling them what they want to hear kind of approach isn't necessarily going to work as well. So what had happened is I was in this interview and the guy had asked me what my biggest weakness was. Now, and I cover this in the basic approach, but I think most people have some sense that the way to answer that is not to tell them what your biggest weakness is. (laughs) The way to answer that is to take something that's actually would be considered a character strength and position it as if it's a weakness so that mentally when the person is thinking about it, they're they're thinking, that's your biggest weakness. I, I actually like that about you. That's what you want the interviewer to say. That's the w- standard advice you'll get for answering this question. And so I gave the basic answer. I said, well, you know, my, I think my biggest weakness is that I'm a perfectionist. And I really focus in on details. And sometimes I get so caught up in, in making the, the, the product that I'm working on as high quality as possible that I forget or I can forget that, you know, we also have to ship this thing. We actually have to get it out the door and, and, and complete it. And so I can sometimes get too caught up with or too attached to the quality uh, and and forget about the realities of this is a business, this is a product, and so forth. So that's my biggest weakness. Now, I, you know, went into examples and so forth, but essentially that was the answer. Now, again, if you look at that, I'm work, I'm I'm applying at a place where we're creating products, so they're gonna want somebody who focuses. I mean, they talk all the time about quality. So that that's what they want. So that's why I gave that answer is it actually would make the interviewer in their mind go, well, that's, I can see how you think that's a weakness, but I like that about you. That's, that's the way you want to answer that question. Well, when you deal with a sophisticated interviewer, they've probably heard that answer before or similar ones to it. And so they know what you're doing. They may have even used that answer in their interviews. And this guy must have, because when I said that, he said to me, well, now that's not really a weakness, is it? And (laughs) 
I had to chuckle a little bit inside because he was right. He knew, he caught me. He knew what I was doing. And so when that happens, and I, I knew this at the time, that's a signal to me. That's a sign. When that happens to you, that's a sign. Okay, I'm dealing with somebody who's sophisticated, who knows what they're doing. And so my basically BS, tell them what they want to hear, answers aren't going to work. Right? I, I, I could answer that way and they would probably get done and go, okay, that's a standard interviewer. But I wouldn't stand out in any way. And so now you have to understand when you get that signal, okay, now I have to switch strategies. Now I have to use this advanced approach that I'm going to cover with you here in a minute. So what I did was when, you know, when he said that, well, that's not really a weakness, is it? You can't change up right then and there because it'll look weird. So all you can do for that question is just double down. And so what I said was, well, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say that that's also a strength in some ways, but it does become a weakness when you're holding up the production line, right? When you're holding up things getting out the door, it can become too much of a problem and you can start to fall for the perfection trap. So you never ship and you're always working on making the quality better and you never actually get anything out the door. So I guess that's why I say I see it as a weakness in certain ways. And so he goes, okay, I, I can understand that. But in his mind, he's going, okay, whatever. But it gets you through that question to move on to the next one where now you can start to hit them. So later on in the interview, now me knowing, okay, this this guy, he knows what he's doing. I need to change my strategy. He asked me a gotcha question. He asked me, how many minutes late to work is acceptable? Five minutes, 10 minutes, or 15 minutes? And again, knowing I had to change up my approach, I knew I needed to answer this in a different way. Normally the way that you would answer this, because this is a gotcha question. And I've talked to people who ask this question in interviews afterwards, and they'll say that they have people be like, oh, well, five minutes. Okay, so don't do that, but I think that should be obvious. But the way that you would normally ask this question is you'd say, well, I don't think any amount of minutes late to work is okay. I should be early to work. That's the basic answer. But when you're, when you're dealing with a sophisticated interviewer, that's not going to impress them. That's going to be the answer 90% of the people give them. So you need a way to stand out. So you really have to get aggressive. You, you want to turn it on its head. And you this is an opportunity for you to destroy the interview, completely disrupt his thinking, what he's trying to do, and just destroy the interview. Make the rest of the questions, like he can't even function. So when he asked me that, what I answered with was, well, I find this question kind of funny because I'm sure there's people who answer, oh, five minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And when I said that, he kind of chuckled and said, you'd be surprised. And I, I kind of chuckled along with him. That's already a sign that I'm, I'm now I'm getting somewhere with him. And I said, now, I know what the answer to this question should be. What I should tell you is that 
no amount of time being late is acceptable, and that I'm always 45 minutes early for everywhere I go. I mean, that's what, that's what you want to hear, but I think we both know that that's not necessarily the reality of life. So I know that being late is unacceptable. I know that I should be five to ten minutes early. As a matter of fact, having been in the Army for 11 years, we always operated off the assumption, if you're not ten minutes early, you're late. That was what my platoon sergeant in the first unit I was ever in always used to say. If you're not ten minutes early, you're late. So that's the mentality that I operate off of. But the truth is, if you ask me, have I ever been late? I'd be lying if I said no. So I'm not perfect. I've, I've been late. I've, you know, I've had issues with that before, but I know it's unacceptable. And I do everything in my power to eliminate that from happening and keep that from happening. Sometimes things happen. Car breaks down, you know, alarm doesn't go off, and it's all, it's legitimately just doesn't happen. You, you set three alarms and none of them go off or the power goes out or whatever. Like sometimes things happen. So I have been late before, but I know it's unacceptable. And I know that that's a problem and I do everything in my power to make sure it doesn't happen. And I do try to follow the mentality of if you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. Now, when you answer the question that way, you're doing a couple things. You're, you're getting inside of the interview process by saying, look, I know this is how I'm supposed to answer the question. Uh, I'm sure you have people that fall for this trick. Like you're, you're talking about the question now. You're actually talking about the interview process and you're making fun of it. And you're making fun of it in a way that the interviewer can relate to. Because I guarantee you, having interviewed people and asked these kinds of stupid questions, as the interviewer, you feel stupid asking them, but you know that there's people who fall for it and you want to weed those people out right away. So you're almost disappointed by the fact that people actually fall for this question. You're like, oh my God, I just can't believe there's still people that fall for this. And then the people who answer it kind of the standard way, you're kind of like, okay, I mean, that's how, you don't give them much credit because you're like, that's how it should be answered. And I'm telling you, if you go through an interview and you answer every question how it should be answered with a sophisticated interviewer, you will not get the job because you'll not, you're not going to stand out in any way. And then they're just going to go to qualifications and it's a crapshoot at that point. You've done nothing in the interview to turn the tide in your favor. But if you take this approach of calling out the question and saying, you know what you're supposed to say and what they want to hear, and then giving them some shocking honesty that also happens to be to your benefit, now when you give that answer of the real answer, they're going to believe you and they're going to you're going to stand out to them because you were smart enough to catch the question and make fun of it and be able to tell them what you know they want to hear. And then you were honest 
in giving them a real answer. And I can tell you from having done this several times what happens. In that particular interview, from then on, because now we had connected on this level of making fun of the question and the people that fall for it. Every question he asked like that from now on, you could tell he felt stupid asking it. Because he knew that I knew that the questions were silly. And so the jig was kind of up and him trying to catch me. He kind of, he started to feel bad and he became his weapons that he had in the interview had been nullified and he felt kind of helpless interviewing me and I could, it it just destroyed the interview. I mean, we went through the, the motions, but at that point it was like every question he was like, okay, this is a silly question. I could see it in his eyes. And there's even a couple times where he'd preface it by going, okay, well, you probably know the obvious answer to this, but let me ask it anyway. When you start, when they start saying stuff like that, when they start commenting on the question itself, that's when you know you got them. Because this has been their process. This has been the weapons they use to attack people in their interviews, and you've just nullified them all. And that makes you stand out in a good way. And by the way, I got the job. <laughs> so... Here's the process for doing this. Here's the very specific refined process for doing this. First off, you call out the question. So I said, well, look, I know this is a gotcha question. And I'm sure you get people who fall for it. Right? You're basically saying, this is a stupid question. I'm sure there's stupid people that fall for it, but I'm not one of them. Right? So you call out the question. Then you tell them you know what they want to hear. You tell them what you know they want to hear. So you say, you know, look, I, I know that the way I'm supposed to answer this question is X, Y, Z. And then after that, you give them shocking honesty. You say, but the truth is, and then you go into your answer. Now, when you do that, you have to look. It's, it's not about the words you say. You have to look at what you've just done. You've just positioned yourself as someone who's smarter than all the other people that they're interviewing. So you've, you've, you've actually physically demonstrated intelligence. Okay. So it's not, this isn't about what you say necessarily. It's about what you're demonstrating in what you say. So you've demonstrated your intelligence by calling out the question and being able to say that you know what they want to hear and articulate it maybe even better than they could. So you've demonstrated intelligence and then you've demonstrated honesty by saying the truth is and then giving them some truth. Now, in your truth, be careful. You don't want to you you want to be honest, but you also don't want to say that you're an unreliable dirtbag either. So that's why I answered that question in a specific way. I know I'm supposed to be early. I know it's unacceptable, but life happens etc cetera, etc cetera. so that doesn't position me as a unreliable dirtbag it just says talks about a reality like sometimes stuff happens i'm sure the person doing the interview has been late to work before so they can relate but when you do this you've demonstrated intelligence and you've demonstrated a really deep level of honesty 
And the number one comment that I get from people, because a lot of the interviews that I've done were with people that I ultimately ended up working for. And so I've talked with them about it afterwards. And the number one comment that I get from them above everything else is they will say, you were just so much more honest than anybody that we talked to. Right? We just, when we talked to everybody else, we felt like they were just telling us what they wanted to hear or what we wanted to hear. And it just, we couldn't really tell what they were thinking and who they were. But with you, you know, we felt like we got a really clear idea of who you were, that you were just being really honest with us. And we appreciated that. We liked, that's what we want more than anything else. That's what you have to understand. More than anything else, a company wants someone who's going to be honest. They'll deal with a lot of stuff if they have somebody who's going to be honest with them. And so when you can demonstrate that in the interview, you've gone a long way towards getting a job because they'll actually believe the answers you give them. Now, part of the answer I gave him was kind of BS because while I did was in the military and we were told the story of my platoon started in the 10 minutes early it was late, I'm not actually really sold on that idea. Uh, I, I'm a person who's going to show up when I'm supposed to be there. So I might be two minutes early. I'm not going to be the guy that's 30 minutes early sitting in the parking lot. So part of the answer was slightly BS, but it didn't matter because he believed it because of the way I said it. And they, they believed that I was far more honest than everybody else because of the way I said it. Here's another way of looking at this. Another way you could put those three kind of steps in your mind, this might work better for you, is you can say, look, here's the conventional wisdom on the topic. Here's what most people think. But I believe this other thing is actually true, and here's why. And what this does is this follows uh, the pattern for interesting theories. I think I've talked about this before. But it's kind of the pattern that Malcolm Gladwell uses in his books. And it has to do with a study that was done. I can't remember the guy's name at the time. But it was on theories that got popular attention and theories that didn't. And what was the difference? And he said most people think it's because the theory, the theories that get popular attention are the theories that are true. But that's not actually the case. The ones that tend to get popular attention and and more traction are the ones that challenge conventional wisdom. And so this pattern, look, here's the conventional wisdom. I don't believe that's actually true. I believe this over here is true. And here's why that approach follows this pattern of presenting what you're about to say in an interesting way, in a compelling way. And when you do this, it gets their attention. It makes them think. And it makes them feel a bit insecure themselves because they probably believe the conventional wisdom. And now you've just given them a compelling argument for something else. And it's hard for them to argue with. And so you, again, stand out to them in a good way. Now, the example I like to use for this is I did this not as a part of an interview, but as a part of the training after I got hired at a sales job. A sales job I frankly had no business getting hired for. I didn't have nearly the qualifications of, of the other people that got hired, but I had done so well in the interview that they hired me. And so we were going through the training and the lady conducting the training was also our 
sales manager. She was going to be our boss. And the training was conditional. They said from the very, very beginning, you might not get the job after this training. It depends how well you do. Now, whether that was true or not, that's what I, I know I believe and the other guys I was with believed. So we were really trying to engage in this training. And so she had asked. I was still kind of in selling myself mode, I guess is the point. And she had asked, what makes a good salesperson? And I said, well, you know, the other, pe- the other guys had answered with kind of your, you know, someone who's a good talker, someone who's persuasive. They'd answered with the regular stuff. And I said, well, most people think it's someone who can be slick and persuasive and who's a good talker and so forth. Basically, the answers they had just given. I said, but I don't think that's the case. I think it's really about caring. And here's why. Because every sales trainer, every sales book, she had this, I did this on purpose. She had this stack of books. We were like going through these books that she had read basically, which was funny to me. I'm always fascinated by people who spend most of their time in the books and not out necessarily using it. She was half and half that, but... I would have thought that sales training would have been more of your experience than what you read in some book, but neither here nor there. So anyway, I said, every sales trainer that you will deal with, every book you read, one of the things that they'll tell you is that you can't sell something you don't believe in. And that's true. Every sales training I've ever been through, at some point, the person will say, look, you can't sell something you don't believe in. And then they'll go into this montage or they'll go into this diatribe about teaching you how to believe in stuff that maybe you shouldn't believe in, right? They don't, they never talk about, well, maybe what we're selling isn't for you. They'll go into why what they're selling it you should believe in. That's the whole idea behind it. But they'll say, you can't sell something you don't believe in. I said, what that really means is you can't sell something that you don't think will actually help the person you're selling it to, right? That's, that's what believing in something means. It means I'm selling this to you because I really believe it's going to help you. It's going to make your life better. And if you don't have that, it, it's very difficult for you to sell. And having done that for this for a lot of years, I can tell you that's true. It's very difficult to sell something to somebody that you don't, when you don't think it's actually going to make their life better. And I said, so the more that you care about the people that you're selling to, the higher your standard for what you sell will be. And as a result, the more you'll believe it's going to help them and the more passionately you'll sell the things, those things that you do believe in. So at the end of the day, it all comes down to caring how much you care for the person that you're selling to. And that will supersede any fancy techniques or slick selling strategies, etc., which... That, again, it's like the interview, that destroying an interview, that destroyed her training, essentially. Because her whole, this whole week of training was slick selling techniques that she'd read in a book. And here I was saying none of that mattered in a way that was hard to argue with. And it left her reeling a little bit. And I became her pet salesman on the floor because I had made her think about something she had never thought of. I had challenged her in a way she had never been challenged and it made her feel a bit insecure. Like maybe I knew more than she did. 
And that's the kind of thing that you want to try and do. That's how you put the pressure back on them in a way that's not, it's not bullying. It's not being aggressive and in their face. It's not being a D-bag about it. You're just expressing what you think. But it's mental pressure. It puts them back on their heels. And they don't know how to... I can tell you, if you can do this, you'll see it right away. They don't know how to deal with it because it almost never happens. Rarely do they ever have someone who challenges them. Who just completely nullifies all of the things that they're normally being able to do. It sends them reeling. Because they, don't, they just don't know what to do with it. So if you can do that, then you're going to have a lot more success in your interviews. And frankly, it bleeds over into the first six months to year that you're working at the job. Like they'll give you so much leeway and credit because you blew them away so much in the interview. All right, well, I'm getting close to time here, so I'm going to have to wrap it up. So we'll end it there for the day. Hopefully you got a ton of value out of that. If you did, be sure to like this episode so I know that you like it. If you know somebody would benefit from hearing this, I'd appreciate if you share them with that. And if you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Again, you can do that at johnmorrisonline.com slash iTunes for your Apple device, johnmorrisonline.com slash Android for your Android device, and johnmorrisonline.com slash SoundCloud for SoundCloud. As I mentioned earlier, If you'd like to get access to the full interview that I did with Mike P, you'd like to get access to this Ace the Interview series, along with you're going to get access to PHP 101, you're going to get access to my Lightning Responsive course, and you're going to get access to all of the source code that I've made available throughout the years. You can get all of that as a supporting listener at the exclusive courses level on Patreon at johnmorrisonline.com slash Patreon. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.